Welcome, everybody. Welcome to our visitors. Nice to have you with us today. Beautiful fall day. And we're going to get into Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And we've done uh, five chapters already. And it's talking about the supremacy of the Lord over everything old. How do we apply that to our life? It's not just the Old Testament law. It's not just the Old Testament tradition. But Jesus superior, is superior to everything old in our own lives. Our past can be forgiven and wiped clean, a clean slate. And whatever we enjoyed in the past, apart from him, Jesus is better. You say, well, I don't know, I had pretty good stuff. No, you didn't discover Jesus. That's a path we're on. We continue to grow, and usually even a taste, and we'll talk about that, tasting of the Lord today. Tasting of the Lord, you see how good he is and how he's superior. And that's why we get together, we study the book of Hebrews, because we want to grow in our knowledge of Christ. We want to grow in our experience of him. And we just want to grow. We want to make progress. And uh, last week, you know, we ended on kind of a, 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 it wasn't an encouraging note, it's a warning road. He said, you, you ought to be teachers at this time, but you're still taking baby's milk. You ought to be on solid meat. You ought to be moving forward, making progress. And that is the theme of this chapter. He's going to carry it from that past uh, warning, I guess you call it, or rebuke or exhortate, whatever that you call that from chapter 5. You ought to be teachers by now. You, you ought to be growing up. This is the theme that's going to be continued along in chapter 6. And it's an important theme because, like I said, we are on a path as disciples. We are to grow as Christians. You don't just... Give your life to the Lord and say, okay, good, I'm, you know, I'm ready to go. Whenever it's my time, I'll go, and then you forget things. If we want to really know the Lord, we have to become disciples. That's the whole point of it. Jesus said, go and make disciples. And what is a disciple? A disciple is one who is making progress, growing. He's pursuing growth, and I would say that a disciple pursues growth in others. So we can't remain babies, and that was the point last week at the end of chapter 5. Uh, speaking of babies, let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 40, to set this up. This is talking about Jesus. We're going to be celebrating Christmas in a few months. And uh, there was Christmas, and the child later grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, this verse represents what I believe is not only uh, what, what is happening with Jesus after he was born, but it's the story of every believer because every disciple uh, patterns their life, their growth after the Lord himself. So we have Christmas. He was born a baby, but he didn't stay a baby. And unfortunately, many Christians, they just stay babies. They just come to Christmas. They receive the Lord, but they, all their life they're on milk and they're not learning how to walk in the Lord. They're not learning how to feed themselves. It's always feed me, feed me. And crying when something goes wrong, we have to grow like Jesus grew, become strong in spirit. That's why we get into the word. That's why we meet together, to grow strong in spirit. And as that happens, we become filled with wisdom and the grace of God is upon us. And that's the benefit of moving forward. That's the benefit of making progress. How would, how would you like to live life with the grace of God upon you? I mean, not just as a theological concept, 
yeah, I know the Lord and I'm saved and stuff, but grace, the power to move forward, the power to overcome, the power to be calm in the storm, the power to have wisdom and, and life in a world of darkness and a crooked and perverse nation, the power of life. That's all by the grace of God. It's not by our self-efforts. We can't do it apart from the grace of God. And so many Christians are lacking because they're not making progress in it. And we need to grow. And that's, you know, we all love pro progress is a part of life, right? No one likes to be stuck. No one likes to be stuck. And we like to achieve goals. We like to see things come together. And the big problem in our day is we are not, you know, people cry for prog progress. We, we talk about politics and the progressive people and things like that. But as much as we talk about progress and we like progress, we know progress is about life. It fuels life. It, it fuels passion. It fuels purpose. Our culture is conditioning us not to progress, though it might speak of progress. It conditions us to passivity, to being passive. You know, all the entertainment. You can be 24 hours entertained. You can binge watch on Netflix. You can scroll through Facebook, and before you know it, hours have gone through. I mean, there's just tons of entertainment. They didn't have this problem so much in the ancient world. There wasn't always entertainment at our fingertips. And conveniences. Our, our culture conditions us to passivity through convenience. Things become more and more convenient, and yet with all the entertainment, with all the convenience, because people are so passive, there's anxiety, there's depression, there's, there's gloom. It's not a happy world out there, even though we can get diverted for a minute and have ease here and there. So life requires more than being passive. It requires movement. And to keep healthy, as, as we all get older, we know it's important to keep moving, right? Keep moving as much as you can. Go for a walk, do something, but you know, don't let those joints get stiff. Keep doing what you can. We want to keep moving. That's true physically, and it's especially true spiritually. You don't want to remain a babe like at Christmas. You want to grow and become strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and all that. So the Christian life is one of progress. It starts at the cross, then it goes to the resurrection, then it goes to what? ascension. There's the cross, there's the resurrection, then there's ascension. That's exciting, isn't it? You're ascending. Yeah, I'm talking spiritually. We can live as people ascending or even ascended. And then what's next? Ruling and reigning. That's the progress the Bible maps out for us. We are going into a place of ascension and ruling and reigning. All of this will be manifest when the Lord returns at the end. But all of it can be working now as we grow and the grace of God is upon us. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right, so with that, therefore, what's it there for? Let's go to Hebrews 6. Therefore, since we ought to be doing this, therefore, leaving the discussion, we're going to read verses 1 to 3. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. 
All right, so the very beginning here, therefore, you ought to be teachers, therefore, you ought, you ought to be on meat. So, with that said, therefore, let us go on to perfection. That phrase, let us go on, speaks of progress, movement, moving forward, and then perfection. What's that talking about? Are we supposed to be perfect now? Is anybody able to be perfect? I don't think so. But perfection, what this means is talking about completion or maturity, right? Maturity. So a child grows and becomes mature. And uh, spiritually speaking, we could be growing old physically, but we're not growing or maturing spiritually. That, that's a shame. And so the author here, who I'm just going to say is Paul because I'm, I'm going to refer to him as Paul. Uh, it's easier to say Paul than to say the author. Um, and it's most likely Paul. Might not be, but there's a good case for it. Just have grace with me if you disagree. Grace be upon you. Um, but moving on to perfection means not laying again the foundation. Now, this not laying again the foundation doesn't mean you ignore these things, but you build off of them. You're not abandoning repentance from dead works and faith towards God, etc., right? But you're building off of them. But we ought to make sure we're clear on what these are talking about. Some people need to get this straight, the elementary principles. Notice that the first elementary principle is repentance from dead works. It doesn't say repentance from sin. That'll put a wrinkle in someone's brow. You're, you're, you know, why did he not say sin? Well, dead works certainly can include works that bring about sin. But what Paul, or the author, I'll say it, uh, what he is meaning here is he's addressing the Jewish Christians, and he's saying it's not it's not about your works. This is the whole point that we're going to see being laid out in Hebrews, that the gospel is a gospel of righteousness by faith. Righteousness meaning you can't be justified by your works. You can't be made right with God by any other means except through faith in Jesus Christ. You can't. No matter how good you can be, you can't be good enough. You might get gooder than some, but you can't be goodest. You can't be enough to be right. And so he's saying righteousness depends on repentance from dead works. Works according to the law, works according to self-righteousness, works according to your morals. All that stuff is, they might be good works, but they're dead as far as being made right with God. Our faith in Christ means that we're believing him for complete acceptance in the Lord as righteous. And there's nothing we can do to minus or add to that. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that ought to be foundational, and yet I'm, I'm, I suspect that a lot of people still don't have that because we think so much about the gospel as just being saved and not as much as being united to God through his righteousness justification accepted and so we continue to beat ourselves up when we don't do good or when we mess up because we're still under a kind of law but it's grace be upon us we it's by grace by faith that we receive the gift of righteousness okay so i gotta move a little quicker if we're gonna make it out of here today um the foundation of repentance from dead works in a faith towards god of course we're to grow in faith faith but he's talking about here of the initial turning towards God, believing this, believing that 
God justifies us through, through Jesus. That ought to be foundational, and we build off of that. And the next thing is baptisms. Notice he says baptisms. There are different baptisms. There's, there's water baptism. There's baptism in the Holy Spirit. And then there's, uh, in, in Corinthians, Paul talks about being baptized into the body of Christ. There's different baptisms. But baptisms are simply washings, immersions, and uh, being immersed in the things of God, meaning your whole life is given over to him. And then the laying on of hands. We don't talk much about the laying on of hands, but in the Old Testament, before they did sacrifices, sometimes they, the priest would lay hands on the animal that was going to be sacrificed or sent away, and it was a symbol of transferring the guilt of Israel onto the sacrifice, and that sacrifice was going to go away with the guilt of Israel, taking it away. Um, there's the transference of authority and power in the New Testament. They laid hands on, on those who would be serving. There's also the laying on of hands for healing. There's the transference of blessings, laying on of hands, transference of blessings. There's something about laying on of hands, you know, something in you, which is Christ in you, can move in a spiritually, you know, I can't explain way, through the laying on of hands. And that's why we do that sometimes. It's an act of faith, and something actually happens through the laying on of hands. And we do this, I believe, too, as a response that we know that God's hand is upon us. And if his hand is upon us, then it can, it can be imparted to others. So these are foundational things. Oh, and then the resurrection. It's interesting he doesn't mention the cross here. I think he, he just takes that for granted. You can't repent or have faith towards God without a cross. The, the way of righteousness was made through the cross. So he doesn't mention that. I find that a little interesting and don't really know how to explain it other than that. But he goes to resurrection of the dead, which I guess you need a cross to have a resurrection, right? So that's just taken for granted. And resurrection of the dead... All the dead will be resurrected, not just believers, but unbelievers will be resurrected. Some will be resurrected to life, and then the others, uh, this is the next one, of eternal judgment. And I don't think, eternal judgment isn't just of the unbelievers, there's an eternal judgment in which all things are going to be consummated, everything is going to be judged, we're going to be we're actually going to be judged. We're not going to be condemned or damned with the unbelieving. We are safe and secure for judgment. That's a whole other teaching and message. But, you know, our works, you know, some of our works will be, you know, wood, hay, and stubble. And some of them will be fine gold, pure gold. And, and so there's going to be, in all that, there's going to be a reckoning, a consummation where everything comes together, eternal judgment. And this also is a signal of progress. All the world is on a trajectory, a moving forward towards this time of the end, eternal judgment. When Jesus comes, makes all things right, wipes away all our tears and pains, and puts us in a place of ruling and reigning with him. And when actual justice, godly, biblical, true justice, will be supreme and evident to all. Oh, what a day that will be. Oh, do you not want to be ready and grown up spiritually to receive it and glory in it? You can remain a baby and just say, well, you know, it all come together. But we can prepare ourselves, and I believe there's something to that too. He's going to entrust those who are grown up with more 
in the, t in the day to come. But that time when justice is going to happen. And that is the place of perfection. We are going to maturity, and this age is going to maturity. There is a perfection he's talking about that's speaking about our own spiritual maturity, but I believe he's also saying we're moving on to an age in which the perfect will come. It sounds like it's found in the Bible, like in 1 Corinthians 13, when the perfect comes, when all things are consummated, when the Lord returns, and when everything has matured to its final end of progress. This is what we're going towards, and this we will do if God permits. Here is a key verse for understanding what's to come next, which some people believe is a very difficult passage in the Bible. If this we will do. What? What will we do? We will what? Go on, come on, go on to perfect. This we will, this is all he had been talking about. The first two verses. We let's move on. Let's get past the foundations, and we will, if God permits. Well, does God not permit it? Of course, God permits it. What's that mean? If God permits, I believe that's simply a phrase that we would use today, more in lines of "if the Lord tarries." If the Lord tarries, you know, we will move on to progress, we will move on to perfection, we will move forward as long as the Lord permits, as long as he hasn't yet returned and put an end to all things. Are you with me? Okay, so that's, that's a key way to understand what's coming next. So let's look at that. What's next? Verse uh, 4 through 8. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. All right, this is a, a very difficult passage of Scripture with many different interpretations to it. But the problem, what's the problem with this passage? We think, can you lose your salvation? You know, and then it says, if you've, if you've departed, can you ever come back? Well, we know from the context of Scripture, let's look at Scripture as a whole. We know that certainly you can come back, right? There's the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son was a parable that Jesus told, that he was trying to teach, that it's okay, you can come back. The, the son squandered the wealth of his father's inheritance, even insulted his father, ended up living riotously with prostitutes and all the wrong friends and things. He ended up in a pig pen at his lowest depth. He certainly was astray and gone. But then he came to and he thought, well, I'll go back to my father and say, please make me a servant. But his father ran out, hugged him, said, kill the fattened calf. We're going to have a party. My son was dead, but now he's alive. He's returned. You can come back. And there's Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times in, in three 
statements, the Lord reinstated him. You can come back. Paul spoke in uh, Corinthians about an immoral believer. He said, cast him out. Give him over to Satan so his flesh can be destroyed and his spirit can be saved in the end. There was, you can come back. Even, even that sinful, you know, he had relations that he shouldn't have been having. Um, we know that David, David had an unspeakable sin and he aggravated that sin with murder and yet he was restored, he came back. And then we talk about the grace of God. What did God accomplish on the cross? And even last week, we read that Jesus became the author of eternal salvation. Your salvation is secure, it's eternal. Eternal means never ending. There is always salvation. You cannot lose it, it's eternal. It's not momentary. You can't lose your salvation. So then, okay, pastor, you. You made that point, but what's this mean then? <laughs> because it says it's impossible you fall away that you can never be renewed. And uh, I, I believe it means this. All right, what did I just say? This we will do if God permits. We will move on to perfection if God permits. We'll move on to spiritual growth, and we will move on to the end of the age when Jesus returns and does everything that we're waiting for. And this we will do, because, for it is impossible, the verse, verse 4, for it is impossible, it might be saying, because once he returns, once we get to this place of perfection, once the end comes, it is impossible for those who have fallen, for those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. You go down to where it says, if they fall away, and the Greek there for if they fall away is actually having fallen away. Because once he returns, it is impossible having fallen away. That means this is the state that you are in when he comes, when he comes back. This is the state at the end, having fallen away. This is a scenario, a hypothetical. If it is that you have fallen away, then it's impossible to renew your repentance again. It doesn't say if you fall away, right, like if I messed up, if I did something and then, oh, there I lost myself. No, it's saying having fallen away. This we will do if God permits, if God tarries, we will move on to perfection because once he comes back, it is impossible, the state we're in, if we have fallen by that point and if we have fallen and haven't gotten back up, you know, it says the righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. There's time. But what Paul is saying here is get on track because this is the time you get on track. The same as today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because once the end comes and you're stuck, you will no longer be able to take advantage of this. You, that's it at the end. Having fallen away, it is impossible to re, regather yourself, reclaim this. There's a verse in Revelation that's kind of, difficult to understand too, but it makes sense if you put it together with this. Revelation 22, verse 11. At the end, when it's, it's looking at the, the glories of the new, new creation, the new heavens and new earth, and there's this strange statement in the final chapter of the book, Revelation 22, verse 11, which says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he who is filthy, let him be filthy still. 
he who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. Now, I thought God wanted us to turn from filthiness and unrighteousness. Why is this message at the book of Revelation saying, if you're filthy, be filthy still. If you're unrighteous, be unrighteous still. He's not saying that God doesn't want you to change or to grow. He's saying this is a, a proclamation of that's it. This is the end. This is the state that you are in. And as we move forward into the age to come, this is the state that you're in. If you're filthy when you arrive to that, you're going to be filthy still. If you're holy, you're going to be holy still. So it's impossible once you get to the end to begin. You can't begin again at the end. And I believe, the Lord have mercy on me, I believe that's the point of Hebrews 6, 4 to 8. You can't believe again at the end. Even the verses about the herbs being gathered and the thorns and briars to be burned, these things, you know, these things come up and it's the final result. What is the final result at the end? Well, the herbs are going to be gathered and the thorns and briars are going to be gathered, but it's going to be for a different purpose. And so you can't begin again at the end. And Paul is saying, stay on course Make hay while the sun is shining. And again, it goes well with today if you hear his voice. Today, don't harden your hearts. Another thing about this is, is something uh, that I got from an old preacher, James Bond. I never heard of him, but it's an old, old commentary. He made a statement that having fallen away is different from falling. There's falling and there's falling away. So, so you can fall... You can sin and be sorry for it. That's falling. But you can fall away. You sin and you're not sorry. You're quite happy about it. You can fall and you can feel guilty. You can fall away and have happy abandon. Uh, and even the in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 here, it says, what is it that's happening here? It's not someone slipping, making a mistake, and losing salvation. It's someone who puts Christ to an open shame. It's repudiation. You cannot lose your salvation. Salvation is eternal. However, you can repudiate Christ and turn away. You are the decider in this. A lot of people are very uh, fearful. You know, did I cross the line? Is God still going to love me? Does, does God still have grace for me? Is God ever going to put, keep putting up? Is he going to finally get disappointed with me? And that's a real, even, you know, I went through that for a little bit when I was going through my Wesleyan theology, and I love Wesley stuff, but I started to think, hey, you know, where do, where do I cross the line where I've done it, I've messed up, and I lost, I lost it. i got to get back with that. No, because we could, every day we'd be in that situation. We have to rest and say, the grace of God is upon us. Salvation is eternal. I am secure. You cannot lose yourself. You can't slip from it. You can fall, but a righteous man falls and gets up seven times. And you say, well, I've fallen seven times. And seven is just a symbolic number of completion and perfection. you still got some seven while you're alive. So you're safe. You're secure in Christ. You're safe and secure. You will never have to worry about being abandoned by Christ. But that doesn't mean you can't decide to abandon Christ. And that's what he's talking about. This was the temptation for the Hebrews. Maybe we ought to abandon this, go back to the old 
tradition. Maybe we were wrong about this. Maybe this isn't for us. Things aren't working out so well. And that would be a repudiation of Christ. That'd be saying, you you know, he, you can't crucify him again at the end. It's now that you take advantage of this. Okay, and this was the temptation for the Hebrews to renounce their faith and go back to the Jewish tradition to works righteousness. Works, dead works. So I don't know if that went over. I've been excited about sharing that, but I don't know if I communicate. Hopefully I communicated that well. Let's move on. Because that's the that's the part that's kind of a warning saying, hey, stay with it, stay the course, don't throw in the towel. Maybe that's the word to us. You might feel like throwing in the towel. Things aren't very favorable towards us in this day and age, and sometimes it seems like, when's God going to come through? Where's the promise? Well, I'm glad you asked, because this is what's addressed next. So bear with me. But this is the point. This is He's saying, stay the course. Don't throw in the towel. God's still there. And now it turns back to the warmth. In verse 9, it says, But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. We're confident that you're going to end up well. We're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So this is the Holy Spirit coming through. The Holy Spirit, these aren't stern warnings without a reminder of God's love. Every warning is backed by the warmth of the Holy Spirit, his love for us, his care for us. And it says that he's confident, even, I believe, the inspiration of the Spirit moving him, the Spirit knows you're going to make it. Just agree with him and go with him on it. And we're, we're confident of these things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. We, things that accompany salvation. Here again is a signal to we should be making progress and enjoying the things that accompany salvation. A lot of people don't think about this. They, they just say, I got salvation, that's it. And then they're on their own. But we actually have a deed to things. Things that accompany salvation. There's a lot more to salvation than just being saved. In fact, Salvation, the Greek word soteria in there, is used in many ways throughout the New Testament. And in places it speaks of deliverance. Deliverance from the wrath to come, from the troubles of this world, from bondage to sin. There's deliverance available. This is something that accompanies our salvation, deliverance. It's also used as safekeeping, protection. It's used as peace, harmony. How many of us would like some peace and harmony in our daily walk? It's used for healing. There's healing in salvation. It's used for wisdom. It's used for the Holy Spirit being present in our lives. If you have the presence of the Holy Spirit, you have the presence of God himself. And that is a, an incredible thing that we have a deed to and that we can live with. And it's also a kingdom position. So Paul says in, in the book of uh, Colossians, let no one cheat you out of your reward. I believe a lot of people have been cheated out of their reward in Christ. It's like we have so much that we can be getting. But the problem is, is we don't know the contract. You know, we have a deed. That's the new covenant. That's the blood of Jesus and his, his life given for us. We have a deed. We have a contract. That's what covenant means. It's a contract. God will do this, and we get this part of it the deal 
And you know, there's lots of things that we're missing out on because we don't understand what's in the contract. We haven't combed it and looked for it. That's why it's good to be in the habit of reading the word daily. Say, what can I get today? What can I learn? What can I discover today? What does God have for me? Who am I in Christ? Who is he towards his beloved people? What can I expect from him? How can I move in this situation? What kind of wisdom is there for me in my parenting or in my job situation? What is there? For, how can I be blessed today with an encouragement from the Lord? There's all kinds of stuff that we get cheated out of because we neglect the contract or we don't believe it. How many of you have credit cards? You know you got some benefits in your credit cards you may not have been aware of. Most people are probably aware when you rent a car, uh, your credit card usually has a collision waiver, which means you don't have to pay extra insurance if you rent a car. Anybody know, know this? Some of you might know this. I mean, they'll try to get you to pay extra when you're renting a car for a collision coverage. And uh, many credit cards have that collision waiver for you already. You can just say, nope, don't need to pay that extra 50 bucks or whatever it is. Uh, some credit cards have warranties, like they make you pay for warranties on electronic stuff when you buy a fancy electronic thing. Some of your credit cards will have a benefit that, you know, if you bought it with this credit card, they'll take care of the warranty thing, things like that. You don't know that because you don't go through the fine print or go on the website and look it up. Maybe you do know it, but that's just a, a trite example, I guess, of what I'm trying to get across is that there's stuff that if we, we need to dig into it, we have to mine for our gold and see what are all the things that accompany salvation, what we have a deed to, uh, even a right to, because of what the Lord has purchased for us. So after that, I'm sure you're all ready to go to your word and say, I'm going to be get my nose in this book. Amen. So Hebrews 6.10, verse 10. And that says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And that's another wonderful, uh, that, that verse has really helped me in times past when I just thought, where is God? Why hasn't God come through? And, uh, you know, and I've, I've done this, I've done this. And I'm not basing this on my works, but God forgets our sins, but he remembers our service when it's done in faith, when it's done for him, when it's done in a work of love when it's, it's done like that if you've done anything like that you're saying where is God God remembers he's not unjust to forget even though it's taking time and this is again this is where, where why hasn't he come through the Israelites felt this way and complained and in, he responded in Isaiah 49 verse 13 through 16 sing O heavens be joyful O earth and break out in singing O mountains for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted wonderful promise but Zion said the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me to which he responds can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb surely they may forget yet I will not forget you see I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands your walls are continually before me. Maybe some of you are sitting here today feeling like you've been forgotten. Maybe you feel like it's just taken too long. But the promise of the Lord is that he cannot. Maybe even a, it's unlikely that a mother can forget. That's very unlikely, but it's possible. But even beyond that, the Lord cannot. 
your names are, are written on his hands. He's, he can't forget you. And it seems like it. they're saying, why have you forsaken us? He hasn't. It's just that things take time. We have a microwave mindset, but God is a crockpot cooker. Verse 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So we're getting into hope now. Because of these things, he's saying, remember your hope. Give yourselves to hope. Give yourselves to hope. It is so easy to give ourselves to everything but hope. We give ourselves to how a scenario will play out. We give ourselves to what we think the Lord is up to and he's against us because it doesn't look like he's... We, he's saying, don't become sluggish. You need to give yourselves to hope and imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And there's a missing ingredient in a lot of Christian lives. They got the faith. They believe the promises. But then, where's the patience? We're like pediatricians. We have little patience. <laughs> I, can't, I can't pass up an opportunity to use that joke whenever I can. Um, <laughs> but you have faith. And then your faith turns into unbelief because you didn't see it work the way you wanted it but it's because you lack patience. Patience is a major player, and it has to be added to faith. And if you have patience, your faith will be strong and not grow weary. You, you, can, you can continue and persevere, not grow weary, not faint, and in God's due time, you will inherit the promise. Just like I've used the illustration of ordering an Amazon product or something online, You've got it, and you have faith that you've got it, even though it's not in your hands, and you need patience because it's going to take a few days before it gets to you. And they said it would take two days, but now it's been four days. Where is it? Well, now you fall apart at the seams because you haven't gotten no. You, you do something. You, you contact them. You say, hey, this is mine. This is faith. And you know, you, you're not wavering in faith. This is mine. Where is it? And, oh, I'm sorry. We'll have to look into it. It might take longer than it was said or that you thought it would take, but you don't move from that place of, it's mine, it's mine. Believe that you have received and you shall have. But without patience, it's, it often falls to the ground. And so we need an encouragement and patience. And what better encouragement can we get from Abraham, who Hebrews talks about in verses 13 through 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. What did he just do here? He brought Abraham into the mix. He's saying, Hebrews, Christians, listen, look at Abraham, how he patiently endured. Now, many of you Bible scholars probably already know this, but for those who need a refresher, let me real quickly give you a survey of Abraham. It won't take long, but you'll find this helpful, I think. In, in Genesis chapter 12, God promises to Abraham to make his name great, to give him a nation, to be born from him. He will be a blessing to the world, and those who bless him will be blessed, and those who curse him will be cursed. 
all of that, and Abraham was 75 years old, and he's pretty much past the childbearing stage. But that was the promise, the unbelievable promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Within 11 years of that promise, here's what happened. A bunch of events in 11 years. He builds an altar in Bethel, and then there's a famine. And so Abraham and Sarah go to Egypt, where he lies to Pharaoh about Sarah. He says, this is my sister. Because he's afraid, he's fearful. Doesn't sound very faithful. God had promised them this, but he's fearful that they're going to kill him because Sarah's beautiful. And uh, he lies about her. Then he gets found out about it. And so they manage to get away. Okay. He goes back to Bethel. And there at Bethel, he builds... Um, now he calls upon the name of the Lord again. And then at the, during this 11 years, his nephew Lot leaves for Sodom. And when Lot leaves for Sodom... Uh, God promises Abraham again in Genesis 13. So he makes the promise again. He promises that his descendants will be as the dust of the earth, which is another way of saying multitudes, multitudes. And then there's trouble in Sodom, and Abraham goes and rescues Lot. And then Melchizedek, who we introduced last week, he comes and blesses Abraham. The king of Sodom comes out and wants to give Abraham riches. He says, no, my riches come from the Lord. And uh, that's, that all happens in 11 years' time. And it says that Abraham was 86 at the end of this time, which you could figure out. Oh, before he was 86, also he had the incident with Hagar and Ishmael. Sarah says, you're not going to have a kid by me. Why don't you go into the maidservant, Hagar? He says, well, if you insist. And he goes in, and he has Ishmael. So here again, he's not doing a good job being faithful and holding on to the promise, and yet the grace of God through the Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture is, is giving him grace and calling him righteous by faith. That's an incredible thing. And, and he's patiently enduring through all this, he, even though he's not perfectly enduring all of it. So that was in 11 years, that, that all happened. And then there's nothing to hear about for 13 years. So 13 years later, 13 years later at the age of 99 in Genesis 17, God promises again to Abraham that he's going to make him a father of nations, fruitful, and kings are going to come from you and your name is not going to be Abram, but Abraham, father of nations, father of multitudes. And he also says about Sarah that she's going to have this birth. And Abraham, you know, that's he's saying, you know, I'm childless. Or actually, that, that was before. He said, I'm childless. This was another, I'm, I backtracked. Never mind. We'll, we'll skip that. At one point, he said, I'm childless. Use my servant, Eleazar. He said, no. And then he did Hagar and Ishmael. He made a lot of mess-ups here. So 13 years later, God comes back and promises again. That's the patience of God. So, you know, God is patient with us. Can we be patient with him? So God promises again. He's going to make him multitudinous. And that he says, a year from now, Sarah's going to have a son. Sarah laughs. And he says, why did Sarah laugh? And she says, oh, I didn't laugh at you. You laughed. But that's what he said. A year from now, she's going to have a son. And then Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. And Abraham journeys with Sarah to a land called Gerar, or Gerar, 
And again, he lies about Sarah, Sarah to the king there. He lies again about saying she's his sister, although it wasn't really a full-blown lie. It's kind of a half-lie. She was his half-sister. Um, so he didn't learn his lesson and he commits the same problem that he did back in Egypt. And yet, we're still talking about him today. God didn't abandon him and say, that's all for you. I've had enough of this. No, God is still patient and full of grace, even in the Old Testament. So the year later comes, at age 100, Isaac is born, and that means 25 years from the first mention of the promise. 25 years had to go by. And then, when Isaac was born, then it got challenged. It's like, oh, it's finally here, but then it gets challenged. God tells him to take him and sacrifice him on the mount, and that had to be several years later because Isaac could go with him, talk, and walk with him up to that mount, and uh, Abraham's ready to do it. He's got the faith now, I guess, that he knows that God did it through this. He can somehow bring Isaac back from the dead, and the Lord intervenes before he actually goes through with it and says, because you have done this, I swear by myself that you will be uh, blessed because you have obeyed, you've done this thing, I'm going to make all this thing come forth. He's just reiterating the promise to Abraham. And he adds to that an oath. He swears by himself, which the author makes a big deal of in the next verse of Hebrews. So why all this mention? Why did I go through this? Just to show that Abraham, we need to remember Abraham. He patiently endured, Hebrews says. He didn't perfectly endured. There's so much, it was a messy journey all the way. And maybe our journey gets messy at times, but it doesn't have to be as messy as Abraham's because we learn from these examples. And we learn because Abraham made it and patiently endured, and he didn't have the new covenant grace of God upon him and the Holy Spirit within him to guide him. He made it. How much more can we make it if we would just believe and endure with patience? And it's not always going to be perfect, but it can be patient. Are you perfect or are you patient or are you neither? <laughs> well, today is the day. Do not harden your hearts. Be patient and God will make it perfect. All right, to finish up. Oh, let me not pass this. Can we put Galatians 3.9 on it? This is another reason why it needs to encourage us. Because... If we are Christ's, in Galatians 3, 9, then we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What God promised Abraham, it took him 25 years to fulfill, but it wasn't completely fulfilled. It continues to be fulfilled and is being fulfilled, and we are in on the fulfillment of it. We actually are blessed as Abraham's seed if we are in Christ, Galatians 3, 9. That's something that you can go home and start to meditate on and think on and then look at your deed and see, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean you're going to be the father of many nations, but the blessing of Abraham is what it's talking about, the blessing. And those who bless you will be blessed, those who curse you will be cursed, and you can be a blessing to the nations. And, and there's all kinds of parts to the, you know, Abraham was, was a prosperous man. And we can be prosperous as well. Prosperous is not just finances, but it's your whole totality. That's one of the deeds that, one of the things that accompany salvation. We can be prosperous. Even when 
were under persecution. And I think this is a hint that he was trying to get to the Hebrews here. They were under persecution. We're not in a, a place. We're in a time of journey, but we will move on and go on to perfection if God permits. So verse 16 to 18, real quick. I know it's, we're going to get, we're just going to go real quick through 16 and 18. Did we lose our screen stuff? Here's what it says. For men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them and, and, and it's an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie that we might have strong consolation we who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So all that's to say, God swore by himself. He gave a, an oath, a promise. This is something they did in ancient times. They didn't probably write out contracts, but their word was their oath, and they swore by someone greater. God says, there's no one greater that you can swear by than myself. He swore by himself. That was for Abraham, and it's for us. Two immutable things, it is the word of God, the promise that he's given, and that he even confirmed it by swearing by himself. We might take it further and say he confirmed it by what he did on the cross through Jesus Christ. God cannot lie, and that should give us hope. I told you about my preacher friend in Missouri, Larry Olson, who starts every sermon by telling the congregation to lift up your Bibles. All right, now lift them up with me and repeat after me. I believe, I believe, this is the word of God. I believe what God says because it is impossible for God to lie. That's not my style. I won't do that before every message. He does it. And I used to think, oh, that's, uh, that's kind of corny. But then I thought about it. This is a powerful truth. Do we believe it because it's impossible for God to lie? Our deed says that we have all riches and glory by we have all our needs met by riches and glory by Christ. We have so much when Christ, who is our life, appears, we too will appear with him in glory. He never forsakes us or leaves us. Well, we might feel like he leaves us at times, but I believe the word of God. I believe what God says. He says he never leaves us nor forsakes us. It's impossible for him to lie. That means I will get out of my bind. I will get out of my trouble. I will get out of this situation. I will move on to perfection as the Lord tarries, if God permit. But I will have what he says because it's impossible for him to lie. Man, I'm getting hopeful thinking about it. I get to preach this so I get to fill myself with hope because I, you know, the, what we see and feel and hear out there, it's not hopeful. But when we go by what God says, there is hope and we get a full assurance. We need to be about hope. We need to be ambassadors of hope. We need to live by hope. We need to guard our hope. This is very important in the days ahead. And I'm preaching to myself because I can be just as despondent and melancholy as anybody else. And I quite often quite am. But uh, I'm learning. I'm not perfect, but I'm learning. And that's the thing. We can, we can recognize when we're not there. And that's the point of these scriptures. And say, man, where am I lately these days? Am I in hope? i got to be back in hope. And what's the benefit of hope? The final two verses here. Final two verses. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
An anchor will keep a ship from shipwreck. Anchor of hope will keep you from becoming a wreck. It represents security. It represents the hope. Uh, it, it, it grounds us so that we don't drift, that we don't stray. We are anchored. And this is a strange thing, though. This word says it, it grounds us. It makes us it's sure and steadfast. That's secure, anchored. And yet it enters into, enters into the veil, into the presence. This isn't just a future thing. Right now, you can be with hope, anchored. That means you can be steady while the waves are crashing and rocking the boat, but you can be steady by an anchor which is entering into the unseen realm of God's truth, God's reality, God's grace upon us that we can walk steadily and move forward onto perfection into the heavenly realm, into heavenly places right now and in the day to come. Because Jesus is a forerunner who went before us, who made the way, who calmed the storm, and who has us tethered to his most holy place. We're safe and we're secure. We're tethered. And it's you think of an anchor that usually you think of it down, and it's grounded, and it goes down. Well, I'm going to ask you to stretch your mystic senses now and think of it as an interdimensional thing in which we're tethered into the spiritual realm. We're straight and steady as we move forward and grow in faith that anchor. I read uh, one commentary talked about an ancient maritime practice where a ship, maybe you can confirm this, Mr. Paul, uh, but uh, in ancient times when a ship was coming to shore and there was a great fog, they, it would be too dangerous to go straight in. They, there might be rocks, shoals, or another boat somewhere in there. So what the captain would do is get a sailor to jump out, pull a rope that was attached to the front of the ship, and swim past any obstacles and get to the shore and then secure the rope and tug the rope so that they knew it was safe to get through. And as long as the ship followed that rope through, they wouldn't have to know what was ahead. They, they didn't have to see it all because they were following the rope and they knew the forerunner had made it to the other side and was guiding them through that, that line. And that is, that is the peace and assurance and the steadfast, the security we can have if we place our hope in our forerunner, Jesus, who has made the way and given us things that accompany salvation. If our hope is placed in anything else, we're, we're going to waver and waffle and be tossed about. This is a secure and steady anchor. This is one that isn't going to give way. And uh, it's because of what God has done for us in Christ. And amen and amen. So sorry if that went a little long, but we're done now. And now... Uh, grace of God be upon us. And we're going to have Randy come up and close us. Let me just pray. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you that you do uh, make a way for us in even when it seems there is no way there is. And I pray that you just build this hope into each life here today and blessings and uh, strengthen us to make progress and to make it with patience and to be uh, lights to others who need this word of encouragement and help. And we thank you, Lord, for everything in Jesus' name.